just want to give a quick disclaimer before we get going into the episode. Uh, the topics uh, that we are talking about today uh, are, are sensitive and graphic in nature, uh, and it is an issue that is hard to talk about as a culture. Um, not only do we talk about that, but we actually had some te technical difficulties uh, throughout the process. We've cleaned it up as much as we can, but bear with us. But, but our guest uh, is amazing, the strength that they have, the resilience, um, but then also the purpose beyond um, the prison that she lived in for so long, um, being able to, to rebound and now impact and save other people's lives. Um, we're really excited for you to hear this episode uh, it is, again, if you've got kids and, and normally you let them listen to the podcast, um, this might be an episode that, that you know, you listen to yeah, first. listen to first. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's an incredible uh, story of a resilient woman that um, has overcame being trafficked, yeah. uh, overcame drug addiction, um, and now is making a amazing, amazing impact in our community. So, uh, again, uh, we're so thankful to have Robbie Hamilton as our guest, and thank you for sticking with us. And welcome to the Darren Woodson Show. This is uh, part two of a two-part series. Um, we previously talked to Matt Osborne uh, with New Friends, New Life, Operation Underground Railroad, um, and, and we talked and we introduced the topic of sex trafficking in our culture and um, it being the fastest-growing criminal industry on the globe. Um, Today, this is part two, we are going to have a very candid conversation um, with a survivor um, mm. that, that went through horrific acts, a terrible journey, um, and with the help of others, but um, had the strength to overcome it uh, and, and to now be flourishing in life. And then not only flourishing, but now to be making an impact herself and helping other victims mm -hmm. and realize that, that you are more than this. You are more important. Um, God meant for more for you out of life. And so we're really, really excited, uh, to, to have our guest on today. And, and this guest, Darren and I, um, actually, so I met, I met Robbie a little over two years ago maybe I guess a, a week before Darren did, but mm -hmm. uh, Robbie spoke at a breakfast uh, for the men's advocacy group, which is under new friends, new life that we talked about in the last episode um, on a panel. Um, and it was, it was a really cool panel because we had uh, you know, myself, a former professional athlete, and then we had a law enforcement. Then we had a business leader, a very, very prominent business leader, um, and then, and then we had a survivor as well. So it was a very diverse group, but what it did, it was a perfect picture to say, look, this affects everybody, mm -hmm. everybody. Yeah. And, uh, and so our guest, uh, Robbie Hamilton, um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank uh, you. she absolutely crushed it that day and we brought it up. You know yeah. why? Thank you. <laughs> because the energy that Robbie brings to yeah. the table, what you, our listeners will hear today, the energy and the pure transparency comes through and you really get a good understanding of her experience. So, you know, Robbie, we want to start, we want to go back, um, uh, in your life and in our, in this show, we talk about the journey. Uh, and we want to go back into your life. You know, where'd you grow up? Uh, was it, a, you know, did you have both parents in your life? Was faith in your life? You know, tell us how you grew up. So I grew up in a really good part of town. I grew up in Dallas. Um, you know, my mom and dad are still married. Um, they've been together since they were in junior high. I have three sisters. I was a cheerleader. I had horses. I mean, I had a very privileged upbringing. Uh, there was no abuse in the home. Um, nothing like that. And so yet at, from a very young age, I was rebellious. I kind of still am. Um, <laughs> and don't tell me what to do. And so I, I just call just, that badass. Oh. I just think you're just a badass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't tell me what to do. Even if it's good for me. And I just, I did, I started rebelling. You know, I started smoking cigarettes when I was really young. I started smoking pot when I was like 13, we were drinking. It was the seventies, mm -hmm. you know I mean? It was the seventies. It was, you know, the whole love the one you're with type thing. And so what I didn't know was how vulnerable that made me. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I started going to clubs at a really young age. I was 15 with a fake ID that said mm. I was five foot seven. 
I'm mm. barely five foot <laughs> you know, um, with black hair or something. And, you know, the guys didn't pay any attention, just let me in the clubs. And, and so one of the clubs that I went to uh, down off a of Northwest highway, European crossroads um, was right next to a strip club. And one night me and a girlfriend of mine um, and I'll just, you know, we were 15 mm. um, incredibly vulnerable, although we thought we knew everything. And it was kind of this, like, you go in, no, you go in. I mean, we were, we were intoxicated and, and we just, we walked in there and what we didn't know, this is one of the things that I tell the girls that I mentor, you don't understand the portal you just opened mm-hmm. into a world that you are simply not prepared for. Mm-hmm. And so we walked in and the guy behind the bar was like, oh my God. I mean, I don't look my age now, really. I'm mm-hmm. 74. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and Darren are the same age. That's crazy. <laughs> Welcome. So, you know, I mean, and, and at 15, I probably looked 12, you know? Mm. So anyway, the guy knew we were underage. Um, but instead of, you know, no, you can't come in here. It was like, oh my gosh, y'all are amazing. Please come in. And, and he treated us like we were long lost family. Um, you know, served us drinks, um, told us that, you know, we were special Mm -hmm. and that we would be his best girls. And, you know, the next thing within an hour, we were dancing in a all nude bar. You were that that same day, that same night. Wow. So you went out to a club, you went right next door to a strip joint and with the intention of just seeing it and you were dancing that night. Yep. It's unbelievable. You know, there was something about, you know, it's funny. I think I got maybe a little lost in my upbringing. You know, I have three sisters. There's only seven years age difference between all four. I mean, between the oldest and the youngest, we're just boom, 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 boom. Mm-hmm. And I, I was an attention seeker and mm-hmm. I think I got lost in the shuffle. And so, well, if I can't get attention there, I'll go get it over here. And I, I just, I don't understand my size. I'm six, five bulletproof. And, Mm. you know, and I think I just felt like I was, I knew what I was doing. I was, I was going to be okay. So what were the conversations like with your parents knowing you were rebellious? uh, I'm sure that was right into their, in their face every day. What was those conversations like then? And did you listen at all? No, Um, no. Um, I, you know, it's funny, I, I'm still apologizing. Okay. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, you know, my dad who I adore, he's my hero. He's the best man I've ever known. But back then we butted heads really badly mm. because he was going to make me mm. behave. And the more that, you know, I didn't grow up in the church. Um, mm. The only experience I ever had with Jesus was from the movie Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. it was because I had a crush on the guy that played Jesus. <laughs> um, I didn't I didn't get it. I didn't I didn't get any of it. And so I didn't, you know, I always believed that there was something. I just I just didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have any um, spiritual direction, if you will, that kind of I knew right from wrong, obviously, but I just, I didn't have a lot of uh, accountability, I guess, because I, you weren't going to tell me what to do. And I was very, very rebellious, very rebellious. So you're, so you're in this, this uh, strip club and you end up dancing. What happens from there? How does, how, how do things, you know, what, what direction from there? We, we went back. You know, Mm. we went back and, you know, it's funny too, because one of the things that is so important for people to understand is that, you know, they'll see a girl that's on a corner and they'll think, well, why didn't she just leave? Mm -hmm. Why didn't she just get a job? Mm -hmm. And it's, and, and they don't understand the pathway to that because not only have you now been exploited, there's a guilt and a shame that is attached to that, Mm -hmm. that Again, in the portal, when you walked in, you you weren't you weren't expecting that. So even though I knew that, hey, you know, they were, you know, it was fun. The next day when I woke up, I felt I felt ashamed. Mm. But because I was vulnerable and you know easily 
enticed, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We went back because he, there was also a part that was the attention. Yeah. Right. And no one walked you back, walked you in the first day. No. I mean, and you know, that is something, y'all, I'm telling you, I had to go through 10 years of counseling mm-hmm. before I would say that I had been trafficked. I, 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 I wouldn't say it because I didn't believe it because I walked in the door, mm-hmm. yeah. but the difference is, is that I was a minor right? and, 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 and you know, sexual exploitation, I mean, exploitation means you've been, exp- and so when you're vulnerable, when you're underage, when you've got people telling you they, they're good at what they do, they groom you. They don't, they don't grab you and throw you in there. They make you feel like, you know, you belong there. And so coupled with all of that, along with the fact that I was rebellious from a young age and I was just, and I was attracted to the dark side. I was. Mm -hmm. And so all of that, it was like a perfect disaster, perfect storm or something. And so, yeah. And again, because it was the seventies, you know, my parents, they didn't know what to do with me. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they just, you know, sometimes it's like, well, we'll just hope it works out for the best. Right. And so there was a little bit of a, you know, the elephant in the room type thing. Mm-hmm. Well, we talked last episode, Tyler was talking about how, and not a good way, obviously, but how smart these people are. And yes. so, and so what you're talking about, yeah, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, they grab you, they throw you in a van, they take you off, but they actually do the exact opposite. They do the they, exact opposite. They get you to want to come back by treating you yes. in a certain way. You know, it's like a lot of people, again, they think that being trafficked, whether it's, you know, for whether you're being prostituted or whether you're being exploited in a strip club, they think that we are approached and it's like the movie Taken, Mm -hmm. like we're forced. And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. We think these people are our friends. We, we, I mean, we would, we would stick up for them. There's so many girls that I mentor that they still want to go back to their trafficker because in their mind, their trafficker is their boyfriend. Mm -hmm. That's not her trafficker. That's my boyfriend. That's my boo. Yeah. And so it's like, he's making money by selling you as a human being. Yeah. And it's just, it's such a, that's the problem with all of this is that we take on the shame and the guilt. Mm-hmm. It's we wear it. So it, how did it escalate from there? From, you know, uh, you go back and how did know, it escalate? I was born. My drug addiction is what is, is what was my downfall. Mm-hmm. Um, because from a very early age, I drank alcoholically. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know what one was. Mm-hmm. And I always overdid everything I did. And so I um, dropped out of high school when I was 17. Um, I was already shooting dope. I was, I was on a path already that um, I, I didn't know how to get off of. Um, at, at a very young age, I had a couple of things happen. Um, my best friend from childhood was killed in a car accident. Um, and my, uh, boyfriend was shot in front of me. And so at what age, those, at what, what age did that, did that happen? I was 22 when that happened. Mm. Oh my A girl came into our apartment and shot him and he, he did live. Um, but you know, attempted, it was just, it was, it was very traumatic. And so in all of that, again, I'm way over my head. I'm not emotionally prepared to deal with her death, his shooting, my drug addiction, working in strip clubs, all of it. And so I just kept, pouring more drugs and alcohol on it. Okay. How did you get introduced to, okay, alcohol, you know, you, you said that you were already drinking when you went into trouble. How did you get introduced and who put those in front of you for the first time? You know, the first time I ever smoked pot, it was with a friend, uh-huh. it was a, an, another cheerleader, another uh-huh. cheerleader. Hey, look what I've got, you know? Uh-huh. And it was like, oh, wow, that's the coolest thing ever. And, you know, I remember when I lived in the sober living, in the sober living house and a, a friend there I asked him because he was my age, grew up in the seventies, the whole bit. And I said, so did you do drugs and alcohol? And he said, no. And I said, really? I said, Mm -hmm. how did you get out of the Mm seventies without drinking and drugging? And he said, I never had any reason to change my reality. Oh, wow. I know. I just was like, oh my, because there you go. So I, I, I think I was just trying to, you know, change my reality a little bit, not knowing that I had the genetic predisposition to become addicted. 
Mm. Oh my gosh. Talk because us- you do or you don't. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then how you deal with it. Um, but okay. So, so you, you, you spend years and years, uh, in the strip club and how did that, I mean, I know it took you a lot of counseling to think, okay, okay. I was actually trafficked. Like I, that was, that was a real deal. But in that time, what is going through your mind on, did you ever say, Hey, I don't want to do this. And then yeah, why can't was, I leave? Was, like you said, there was, so my mom and dad, you know, my family was always coming to me with, you know, like, okay, plan number 47 of how to help Robbie get it together. And, <laughs> you know, if I, they would, you know, pay my rent, my mom and dad, they threw money at my problems because mm-hmm. they didn't know what else to, to do, you know? And so, um, and I would, you know, get out of the strip clubs for a while and I would go get a job managing apartments as a leasing agent, get a free apartment. That was kind of my thing. Mm-hmm. I got fired. In fact, when I, um, I had to write down all of the places I'd ever been employed, um, wow. when I was getting my pardon and, um, it was 64 places. Oh my God. And I was like, well, apparently I interviewed really well, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, but until my sobriety and I've been sober 17 years until now I had been fired from, I, I was fired from a topless club and that mm. does, you know, for doing <laughs> yeah. drugs. And so, which does not look good on a resume, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just, I didn't have any direction I remember I kept waiting for somebody to save me. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm listening to your story and it's like, you know, your mother and father were, were, you know, listen, I, I, I have a, my daughter went through a drug addiction problem. Did she really? She went through one and it wasn't, it was sort of the same catalyst of, I, I couldn't fix her. I couldn't fix her. And I was throwing money at her to just to, you know, I, I could sit down with her. She looked right through me. I mean, Robbie, right through me. And I would throw money at her, try to get this done, get that done with her. And it just didn't happen that way. And it took, you know, she'll tell you in a minute, it took her to be saved. I mean, she had to go, she had to go through the process that she went through. She had to go through that. But, you know, it's funny. I I tell people it's, it's like you're throwing money at a problem that money can't fix. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even with people that I, that I sponsor through the 12 steps, when I talk to them about, about addiction, even we don't know what the heck's wrong with us. We just think it's a moral problem. Right. Um, and it's, it's, it's real simple. The reason we can't hear you is because we're addicted Right. and you're in our way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so as long as you will worry more about our problems than we are, because we don't care if our rent gets paid. We just want more dope. Right. Yeah. And so as long as you'll care about our problems more than we do and fix them, we'll let you. Yeah. Oh Isn't my that, gosh. And, yeah. It's that simple. It is that simple. Wow. Okay. okay. So, so let's, let's move forward on this. Okay. So you started you, you, your first go around was going to a strip joint at 15 years old. You had alcohol mm-hmm. and how long were you going through these, this experience of drugs, strip joint? I mean, this go from you 15 know, to that really, that really lasted. Um, cause I'm, I moved to Houston. That's where my boyfriend got shot. Um, I moved to Houston in the early eighties and I was dancing in strip clubs there. Um, moving back to Dallas dance. I mean, so all of the eighties are just, a blur. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the eighties, um, I remember I was getting, I was getting tired because suddenly now I'm getting into, I'm almost 30. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you're young and you're a kid, it's like, ah, you know, I'm just experimenting with life. But you know, suddenly you start getting to be 30 and your friends are getting married and they have a mortgage and you're over here dancing in strip clubs. And mm-hmm. it started, it started bothering me. And so I, I tried to get it together. And I, for a couple of years, I, was able to get it together. Um, and I managed apartments, but you know, it's funny cause to me at that time I had it together, but I smoked pot every day. Mm-hmm. I was still an addict, mm-hmm. but I just was a functioning addict, if you will. And in about 93, I guess, um, it, the bottom fell out again. I started, I started doing drugs again, heavy drugs. Methamphetamine was mm-hmm. the one that mm-hmm. I did. And I started working in strip clubs again, and I then worked in strip clubs until I got sober. 
Okay. Talk about that catalyst of getting sober. What was that? What was that bottom for you that you're uh, like, I, so, this is enough. Um, and, and, I, and just one thing I did do on drugs, but one uh. thing I did do is I did go, went through cosmetology school in the late nineties okay. and I, and I got to finish it. Okay. So, um, you know, in, in 1999, my dad came to me and said, um, I'm going to pay your rent again. And this is the last dime I'll ever give you. Mm. And my little sister, who's another one of my heroes, um, had finally convinced my parents that they were killing me mm. by wow. throwing money at mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. and that they had to let me fall. And so they did. And I lost, I was evicted the next month um, out of my apartment. And that was the beginning. I was homeless for three and a half years. Homeless um, for three and a half years. For three and a half years, um, from 1999 until 2003, um, I it started out, you know, where I'd go stay with this person who was a good friend of mine, and um, but my drug addiction was so bad that I had become kind of that girl that yeah. was like, God, get her out of here. Yeah. Um, and I was still working in strip clubs, but barely because I, my addiction had gotten really bad so that I physically had started looking really bad. Yeah. Um, and I was 40 working wow. in a strip club. Right. I'll never forget. I'll never forget. I was at PT's by White Rock Lake. And a guy came up to me as I was on stage and he said, hey, me and my buddy, uh, we have a bet going. And I go, yeah. And he goes, how old are you? Wow. And I was like, yeah. And it was just, I, I mean, I didn't know how to get out. I, I really did it. So I was staying in an apartment in Garland um, and that experience, I could write a book on just by itself. Um, and I was hanging out with people. I didn't hang out with anybody unless they had a really bad drug addiction too, because mm -hmm we were going to drug, do drugs all yeah. the time. And I hung out with um, several men who were dope cooks. They were meth amphetamine cooks. So mm. I lived in meth labs in trailers and in Farmersville. And, um, and so I was living in one apartment in Garland and the Garland task force kicked our door in with a no knock search warrant on January 14th of 2003. Wow. And they rescued me. They arrested me. I had been arrested four or five times over the previous few years mm -hmm. charged with drug possession mm -hmm. and when they kicked my door in this time i was arrested for drug possession and with the intent to deliver and mm -hmm. then i also had felony warrants out for my arrest from other cases that i had been running from mm -hmm. so i was just in this you know um and so when i got to court and was arraigned within a couple of days the judge said the words that saved me and they were, you have a no bond. You're not getting out. Wow. Have a seat. You needed to hit rock bottom. You needed to go I had there. To. And yeah. you know, it's funny because I remember, I remember, in fact, this is going to be the first sentence of my book. I'm kidding. But I remember <laughs> laying on the ground with the M16 and the boot on my back holding me down. And I, I was just crushed. Mm. Sobering up in jail from... Drug addiction is excruciating. Mm, and years yeah. of it, not just. And I had done it so yeah. many times. Yeah. Oh. And I remember I looked at the guy that was the dope cook. And I just said, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And, and so when they took me to jail and the judge said, no bond, I, I, just, I just let go. I just, so, I but, just let go. But it go, even that, I mean, you had to dry out. Yeah. You had to dry you know, out. It took me, it took me, I had probably been close. I'm not kidding. And I even wrote it down. I had probably been close to 10 years sober before I could differentiate between 2000, 2001 and 2002. Wow. I did not know where I had been. I, 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 it was just motels and people. Um, and so, um, so yeah. So when I got to jail and they did the no bond, I remember going back to my cell and I didn't, I didn't call my parents. 
I just, I just started praying to this mm. thing that was bigger than me that people called God. And I remember I would say, this was my repeated prayer. I would say, God, please, if I ever try to get to the dope house again, just make me so sick that I can't get there. That was yeah. what I kept saying. And within just a few days, um, just something was different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a part in the Bible that says all old things pass away and all things become new. Mm. And y'all, there is such a thing worse than death and it's living without hope. Oh. And I had not had any hope. I, I remember looking in the mirror one time, you know how usually when you look in the mirror, you're looking at your appearance, you know, your clothes, your hair or whatever. And I remember I'd been shooting dope all weekend in this motel with a guy. And I remember looking in the mirror for a second and I saw me. Yeah. And I rem- I was gray. I had blood shots all over my chest from, sh- I just, I was, um, I was 30 pounds thinner than I am now. Um, and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, you, you had such potential. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I thought you're going to die like this. And I was so addicted that I thought, well, then I just guess I hope it doesn't take long. Right. So, you know, that's, that's what I'm sitting here thinking when you've never been addicted to drugs from an outsider looking in, you just don't understand why they can't just stop. You don't understand Absolutely. why, why if, if no bond hits you, and that's what was the cat. Why couldn't have that happened earlier? You know what? Right. Why couldn't have your parents something they said right. been been something that changed you? So, what was your? I'm just sitting here thinking, what was your relationship with goals and aspirations and dreams? Like, what did you want to do with your life? Idea. I had no idea. That's one thing that I look back and I really do. I think, why? Mm. Um, the only thing I cared about was the club on Friday night who had dope and what we were going to do next. Mm. I didn't have any direction. I didn't have any, you know, I'd like to be a, you know, criminalist or, you know, I want to be a private detective now and I want to work for, you know, the Homeland Department of Homeland Security and mm. help kick in doors and, you know, and, and rescue girls. Well, Robbie, one of the things I, I wanted to talk to you about, because there's there's some similarities here. You know, again, my daughter went through it for about a year and a half, uh, and not to the extreme that, that you went through it uh, in your life. But uh, so she's OK now. She is. She's been Yay. sober for three and a half, four years, about four Yay. years. And she'll tell you the date, uh, everything. Yeah. But, you know, again, I have my date. I have tattoos now. I've gotten them all in my recovery. <laughs> I'm covered in Jesus and recovery tattoos yeah. now. But I have my sobriety date. Like I tell people, I can't relapse. I have my sobriety date tattooed on my back. Yeah. <laughs> but, but one of the things, the experiences as a father that I went through, because I love my daughter. She's always, you know, I can only imagine my daughter all the time as she she was the baby. She was, you know, at three years old. I'm looking at her, you know, and, I'm, oh. and I always look at her through those eyes, but. You know, and, and to Ben's question about, you know, it's a disease. Yes. And yes. you think that you can get over the hump by just having conversations yes. and, yes. you know, why don't you just do this? And why don't you just Absolutely. do that? And that, and it doesn't work that way. And I've been, you know, highly successful in a lot of areas. I sucked at that. And it's, it's so confusing because, you know, I tell people the way we bleed and I mean, we, when I mean addicts, when I say we, the way we bleed is in our behavior. Yes. The the way a cancer patient who is, that's also a disease. The way a cancer patient bleeds is through their body. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is we lie, we cheat, we steal, we manipulate, we wreak havoc on anyone that has anything to do with us. And so because y'all who are not addicted look at our behavior of addicts and you just think, why can't she just stop? Why can't she just, yes. you know, I tell people addiction happens when your brain and all the neurotransmitters takes over your mind, will and emotions. Mm-hmm. When your neurotransmitters are addicted to the drug, 
that is what suddenly drives everything you do. Um, we're like lab rats, and it really is that simple. You know, I had a sponsee call me last night, and she had relapsed. And she told me that she really thought the reason that she had relapsed was because she had been so lonely. Yeah. And I said, baby, you mm. relapsed because you're an unrecovered addict. Mm-hmm. We use, if we're happy, lonely, sad, get a job, lose a job, have a, we don't need a reason. Right. So, mm-hmm. and, and, and as long as you think that the reason you relapsed is because you were lonely, you'll get to think where if I'm not lonely, I'll, I'll I won't use anymore. Yeah. And that's not the case. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just the reason. Yeah, the, the disease of addiction is a, is is something that I'm very passionate about yeah. because it, yeah. so many people don't understand. They don't, and, it, and it's the arrogance that comes along with it. Like I, in my situation, it was the arrogance to think that I could dry my own daughter out, that I could do. I, I don't. Why don't I send her to a rehab center? And it was the arrogance, the ignorance. It was the fact that the embarrassment I didn't want to go through on my own, and I felt like I could I could save her. I could be the one. Aaron, I get yeah. that. Yeah. You know, I I get that. You know, my 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 poor mom and dad, I have freaked them out my entire life. You know, because now what I do in a sense is a little bit like, oh, there's Robbie on in the mm. news again, or mm. you know, talking about being a stripper. Um, and so it, it is, it's a little bit of that embarrassment, I think, because I think that parents believe that you know, they're responsible some way for how we turned out. You right. Know? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm already thinking that way and I, my sons are three and, and five months old and it's, how am I going to make them do something or how am I going to push them in a direction? You know and this it, is the thing I tell parents. Cause I, I get to, I get to do a lot of speaking to parents and this is what I always say, have a conversation. And I don't mean one, mm-hmm. a constant conversation because you know, this is the conversation I got when I would get in trouble. You're grounded, go to your room. Yeah, that was it. Right. And it, I had no voice. And so and I'm not, I'm not blaming. I'm just saying, it was no, just, no, 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 no. I get it. I get it. But, you know, even my sister Kay was saying, and not only have a conversation with your kids about drugs, but don't don't tell them, oh, they're bad, that drugs are bad. Oh, they're, because if they do do them and they like it, they're going to think you're a liar. Yeah. Or so be honest. Or there's something be, wrong with them because they like exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, then be, there's the guilt. Be, be honest. Like, hey, they start out, it feels okay. It feels you think you're having fun, but what you don't understand, and again, that portal, you don't understand. Mm, yeah. You know, some people that are like their favorite thing is alcohol or meth or cocaine or whatever. They think that if they're if they're not doing that, but they are drinking still, yeah. then it's okay. And it's like no, you have to be completely sober. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, because you, you don't, the problem with the disease of addiction is that you don't know you're going to get it until after you have it. Right. Mm. And yeah. after you have it, you're, you're screwed. You're you know? well. Yeah. All right. So, so you're in jail now and you've hit rock bottom. And you go through the dry out process. And at the end here, when we when we finish up with the conversation, I want to have a, a brief conversation with you. Uh, just, you know, talking because uh, there's a lot you're saying right now, Robbie, that I've been there. And this brings back so much pain. I still got, you know, I'm emotional about it. But, you know, you're in prison right now at, at that point in your life. How many years are you are you serving? Um, I didn't get sentenced to prison. I was only in the Dallas in the jail? County Jail. Okay, okay, Thank okay. goodness, yeah. But I was there for seven months. Um, and I got, I was on three different probations, a 10-year, a five-year, and a three-year. Um, and I got sentenced to court-ordered drug treatment in Wilmer, Texas. And so I was transferred from Lou Starrett straight to the drug treatment. And it was court-ordered also. So, like, if you left you would have an escape charge, mm. but there was no, there was no cells. You okay. know, we lived in cottages and, and, but by this time I was on fire for Jesus. Mm. Um, you know, I was baptized in Dallas County jail. No way. I was baptized oh. 28 days after I had been thrown to the ground and arrested. Oh. Um, I had, I was so on fire for Jesus just it it, 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 I was sanctified. I mean, it came to yeah. me so. I just had such a, um, just 
it's like it's almost like I felt like it was me and Jesus and my Bible in my cell. Mm-hmm. I I remember okay, y'all. So I I have a very colorful <laughs> language. <laughs> hey, there's zero filter on this. The great thing it. is we're not on we're not on uh, public radio. No, so. we have yeah. nothing yeah. binding us. You say what you want to say. Yeah, well, I'm I'm kind of known for it, you know. Yeah. And so I came to jail and had my colorful language with me, and I was raw. I mean, I'd been in the clubs. I was drug deal, all of that, and. So so I remember my Sally, my bunk, my bunkie, um, she had been having a problem with a girl there in our tank. And I, she was telling me about it. And so I said, I go, well, why is she being such a, and I kind of leaned forward and I said, such a bee. Mm. <laughs> who, who is this person? You never filtered what? yourself before. <laughs> but it was like, it was mm. like, I felt so, I'm going to cry. I felt so pure yeah Mm. that i couldn't let it come out of my mouth and y'all for probably four years i did not ever in fact my friends my childhood friends when the first time i actually let you know the f-bomb slip or something they were like oh thank god she's (laughs) (laughs) they didn't know how to talk to me anymore you know but i just i just was so I was so grateful that I had made it out because I didn't think I was going to, and I just had hope. And I remember I was facing two to 99 years, Mm -hmm. you know, the DA would not give me probation. And so I had to go open plea before the judge and just, you know, that he would give me Mm -hmm. drug treatment. And I, I didn't care. I, I knew that wherever I ended up is where I needed to go to be able to be okay. And mm-hmm. God was in charge and I was, I was good with that. And so when I got court ordered drug treatment, you know, I went, I completed it. It was hard. Woo! Yeah. It was hard. I learned a lot because uh, it, it was a behavioral modification treatment center. And I learned about you know, my selfishness and my entitlement and my manipulation and all the things, the criminal thinking, just all of that, that I had to let go of. And Mm. I graduated, um, moved straight into a sober living house because when I got out of drug treatment, my mom and dad's house was still no. Mm. My mom and dad to this day have not given me a dime as they shouldn't. I, I got to rebuild my life. Right. And so I moved into a sober living house. I lived there for three years. And it was when I was, when I walked in the door, I saw one of my old cellmates from Lusteret. And I was like, what's up? <laughs> and she told me about new friends, new life. Mm. And so I had been out maybe a week when I went to new friends, new life for the first time. I want to, Robbie, I want to stop because I want to go back really quickly. And and I was going to ask the question to you, but you answered it. But uh, I want you to go back into that cell um, before, before you're in front of the judge and before you're ordered to, to drug treatment program. And had you not found your faith, had you not found that hope, what do you think? Because I'm, I'm just saying there's so many men and women that are in that position. And, and because we're, we're talking about the trafficking and we're talking about that, let's speak, let's just speak to the women that are in jail, that are arrested. And then it's like, what do I do? Like, right. there's nothing else for me to do. And in your case, I'm, I'm 40 and I don't know, I, I dropped out of high school. I've been addicted to drugs for the last 20 years. Um, I mean, what am I supposed to do from here? And just the hopelessness that would be there. But like you said, something so powerful came to you in the Dallas County Jail that gave you hope in the, the most challenging circumstances ahead of you and yet you were able to have hope and you know prayers were answered that you didn't have to serve prison time i mean can you imagine put yourself in the shoes of someone else that doesn't find that you know because i had been arrested and i had three other felony charges against me that i had gotten out and they were like okay make sure you come back to court i'm like yeah right find my find my ass in dallas you know (laughs) so and they will they they will um but so i was in a lot of i was just in so much trouble that um you know when i did get arrested 
um, I, I didn't know, you know, what I would do. And so when I, when I was able to let go and find, and find God, it just, it made such a difference. But the times before when I would get out, I was straight back to the dope house because before, I mean, I would, I would be locked up like six weeks, seven weeks, something like that. It was always usually about that before I would go to court or something and I would get out. And within hours I was, I was right back where I was. And so this last time, you know, it's funny, every January 14th, which is my sobriety day, I take cookies and brownies from Paradise Bakery because they're so yeah, good. So good they are. <laughs> um, to the Garland Police Station. And I take them to the police officers there. And I always just say, you know, if you ever doubt that what you do makes a difference, I want you to remember me mm. because they saved my life. You know, they came in and they took me out of a situation that I didn't know how to get out of. And then the judicial system locked me up so I could get some clarity and get something. Mm. So, uh, Ronnie, talk to, talk to us about the, um, let's just cause we, we talked with Matt, but the women that you're working with now, um, maybe, you know, yes, seventies and eighties were a little bit different, but now you are working with new friends, new life. You're working with the 12 step program, um, making the impact. And, and like you just mentioned, the police officers in Garland that saved your life. Now you're trying, you're doing that, uh, to, to other women, that have gone through, you know, sex trafficking, drug addiction, um, the, the, the whole gamut, but talk, talk through that experience and, and how you can relate to that. Okay. I can't, I could not escape it. I could, there was, there was no way out for me. Now talk about some of these girls and what they're going through and how you give them hope. You know, by, by standing in front of them. I mean, I know that sounds simplistic, but you know, my pastor, um, he always says there is nothing more healing to the human spirit than someone looking at you and saying, I know me too. Mm, yep. Yeah. And so for me to be able to say, I, I get it. You know, and, and, and another thing, and, and this is where, you know, I, I, I used to, I used to ask God to help me have a more, um, uh, less bold, just, because I just say it. I Zero mean, filter. Me. Zero filter. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard of those. I've never had one. <laughs> I've heard of those. Um, and so, and, and yet, you know, I, I he, and he doesn't. And so in certain situations, I've spent half my life apologizing for something I've said. Mm-hmm. So in certain situations, it is too much. But I can talk to a dope fiend. I can talk to a girl on the streets in a way, because I've been there. Mm-hmm that y'all can't, All someone right. else can't, a counselor can't, master degree social worker can't, because we look at y'all and think, you don't know what I'm talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so for me to be able to, I can call them on their, on their shit. Yeah. And I can also give them hope. And so, you know, I'll say too, my white privilege, I'm telling you, it's one of the reasons I'm sitting here. Mm-hmm. I have learned so much. These girls they, they don't know how to get out. They don't know how to get out. One of the things that, that New Friends New Life is able to do is we're, we're able to give them a, a pathway. You know, I, I used to, I still do, want to go into the prisons and, and talk to people because, you know, a lot of times when we're rebuilding our lives, people will say, well, you know, just let go and let God or, you know, one day at a time or mm-hmm. just pray. And I'm like, you don't get it. Mm-hmm. I don't know where to go when I get out. Do I go right? Do I go left? Do I do what do I do? Don't tell me to pray because that's I need I need clear cut directions. You know, there was a girl and I'd love to find her. There was a girl when I was in Lusterat that I was out in the break room, reset whatever. It's a cage, um, and I we were talking just for a brief moment, and she was getting ready to go home. And she and I talked about wanting to be better and stay sober and, you know, what that looked like. And she said, Robbie, just try it their way. You know, your way wasn't working. 
And so go surround yourself with people whose lives you respect and then do what they tell you to do. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I, that's what I say to the girls. I always tell them, do you want what I have? Do you want what I have? Because if you want what I have, you've got to do what I did to get it. Mm-hmm. And, right. and you can't do what you did to get what Robbie has. You got to do what I did to get what Rob, you know? And so I'm, I'm very, because I went through the behavioral modification drug treatment, I'm very much about accountability. I'm very much about, you know, Hey, that's, that's not, you know, honesty, you know, moving forward, keeping your word, having a, having an idea of what you want to do. Um, and I tell my girls all the time, every time we hang up the phone, I always am telling them how much courage it takes. Mm-hmm. I always say, yeah. see that door over there? Only badasses walk through that door mm-hmm. because uh-huh. there's so many people on the streets that don't get to do what we do. So only badasses walk through that. You sound door. like so my daughter. Go. You sound like my daughter. She says, there's no one like us. We are, we are our own <laughs> you know, kind. Yes. Yeah. I mean, seriously. And so I, when I hang up the phone with my sponsees and my girls, I always say, okay, go be a badass. Hey, well, talk to us about being a, a, a sponsee because you know, you know, I've heard that many a times, but really never knew the power of accountability. Tell us about being a sponsee. So being a sponsee means that you are, you know, the one coming in and wanting to work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or Cocaine Anonymous. There's several different 12-step programs where you are a sponsee coming in and you're wanting to rebuild your life and get sober. And so a sponsor is someone that has done the work already and they come in and they're, you know, I'm very hands-on with my girls. You know, I was a sponsee when I went through it all and I've worked the steps three times. Um, and now I sponsor girls to do the same thing. And, you know, I, I usually only sponsor one girl at a time. Um, right now I have three, but it, just because of the pandemic, I have more time at home. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, you know, we need someone that can say, what were you thinking? Mm-hmm. But in a way that's non-judgmental mm-hmm. and a way that can help them, okay, you know, or, hey, what I did was, because we don't really want to hear, this is going to sound bad, we appreciate the social workers and we appreciate the, we do, <laughs> yeah, we right. do, because it's it's a loving thing, but there, nobody can tell, and, and I, I say dope thing with a lot of respect. It's not mm. an insult when I call right. myself that because it's just, um, and so, but there's no one that can talk to another dope fiend like a dope fiend yeah. or someone that's come out of the life. Yeah. Mm. Um, it, it, the minute, the minute I tell somebody who I am, they're like, Oh, what now? Mm-hmm. It just, it just yeah. gives me a, well, a PhD immediately. Well, and it's like, okay, just to bring it to football. Cause, cause the three on, on this side can relate to that. It's like, Okay, I've got a I've got a running back coach uh, that not only never played running back, but he never played football, and he, he's over here telling me how to run routes or how to pass protect. But keep keep your elbows tight and punch them right in the chest. It's like you know what, dude? Like get out of here. Like I get it. Like by the book, you're giving the right answer, but like it's totally different. And and exactly. you you unfortunately had to go through some very 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 hard times. But that is what prepared you to be able to serve so many more people and to impact so many more people. And that's what I love about your story. And we were so excited to get you on was because you chose to take something that could have killed, well, probably killed a lot of people going through what you did, but you turned that into now serving and, Mm. you know, nearly two decades of just helping other people overcome the challenges so that they can escape like you did and then impact other people. And I love that. Thank you. You know, it's what makes my life. It's what makes my life make sense. Yeah. It's what I was meant to do. Um, you know how every now and then you just know that mm. you're directly in God's will. Mm, yes. Every time I'm working with, it's a privilege to get to see someone just vulnerable going into the Dallas kind of jail, taking AA meetings, going into drug treatments, working with my girls that are coming in off the streets. It's a privilege to get to see people that broken down and, and, and actually speak to them. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a privilege. Robbie, in, in your experience, 
if somebody's listening to this and, and they're addicted, whatever addiction it is, can you get through this alone? Can you beat this? Can no. you beat addiction alone? No, no. Every, you know, every single addict has an enabler. Yeah. Every single one, whether it be someone that has nothing but good hopes for us and, oh, this is going to work this time. But so that person has to stop. But no, we need support. Y'all, we are so much sicker than people understand. We have a disease that tells us we don't have it. We, we, we're spiritually bankrupt. We're filled with guilt and shame and we're heavily addicted. So yeah, we need help. We need, we need, it takes a village. Robbie, I want to, I want to kind of tr- transition a little bit to the sex trafficking side, um, and new, new friends, new life. And, um, I, I want you to speak to the men out there. Um, you had a trafficker that, that yes, maybe didn't grab your hand and walk you in the door, but he kept you there and he kept you there through manipulation, through mind games, uh, through, you know, through incentives, through all those things, but talk to the men out there and the impact that we play on the sex trafficking industry. Um, and then also, you know, the responsibility that we need to take and the obligation that we as men need to really stand up and own. You know, I think men, um, and I, and thank you for this because it's, it's huge. If there's no demand, there will be no reason for a supply. Right. And so, um, I think that men, A, I don't think they're really thinking about what they're doing when they're in the strip clubs. They've, they've um, objectified women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they think that we're there by choice. Yes. Right. And I think they think that the girls on the street are there by choice. And I use this example all the time. If you had a choice, would can't see my hands. If you had a choice, would you rather graduate from high school, graduate from college, college your dreams, you know, get employed at the biggest place you could ever imagine for yourself, have a wonderful career, get married, start a family. Would you rather have that or would you rather drop out of high school, be drug addicted, working in strip clubs as a minor, sticking a needle in your arm every day and not knowing how to get out. Which one would you rather have? Well, duh. Yeah. Right. So that's, there was no choice. Well, it's like we were talking about earlier. It's, it's not as simple as just stop. Exactly. Quit doing it. What is that? You know, one of the things I do, I'm so, I, I, I have such a heart for homeless people. Obviously I've panhandled on the streets before. I know what it's like to have someone look at you and look away and it's devastating. Mm. And so when I see people on the streets, I, um, usually park my car and I go over and I ask their name. That's important to me because the main thing I, I, I want them to know, I see them. That's something that I, I don't have money to give everybody. I don't make a ton of money, mm. but if I have it, I'll give it. If I'm drawn, if I'm led by God, if, but I always say, I just wanted you to know that I see you and that you matter. Mm. And I always tell them my name. I just, I mean, these people ha- probably haven't heard their name in days. And so I just, there's a, there's a kindness there that I think that people are somehow lacking. So back to the men. So men, you know, the, the, the man kindness part of, mm-hmm. you know, new friends, new life. Oh, first of all, Matt's a superhero to me. He is a rock He's star. A super, I want to go to Haiti. I want to go yep. to Haiti. Yep. Okay. S- straight up. So, um, but so, <laughs> and them going into, I don't want to kick doors in. I don't want to, you know, Hey, anyway. hey so, you and me, you, you and me both. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't care that people tell me, Robbie, you're like a chihuahua. You're this big. I don't care. <laughs> I'm going I'm to I'm run under the bullets. <laughs> I'm going to run under it because I ain't playing. So uh, I'll break, yeah, I'll break you in half, buddy. I'll break you in half. So, um, but the, the going into the junior highs and the high schools and telling men, it's so funny. Like who decides what's cool? Who decides right. that? Because there's the cool people that are, you know, checking the girls out and woo, I'd like to tap that. Look at that. And, and they objectify the women from a young age. They're looking at porn. They're, hey, you know, that's just what 
we do. Mm-hmm. And the next thing, you know, cause, cause you men don't just all of a sudden at the age of 35 decide to buy a human being and rape her. Right. It's right. a process. That's right. And so if you can, if we can help the younger, like decide, Hey, you know what? We're going to decide that what's cool is not doing that. Mm-hmm. We're going to decide that what's cool is respecting girls and helping girls and treating them as if they were our daughter and all of that and breaking the systemic cycle. Mm-hmm. So that is something that they're doing. But for the men, I think for men to just realize that, we're not there by choice that the we're not there by choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's no, right. To, 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 I, I, you know, American men are the number one producers in the world yeah. of child pornography. And they're also the number one consumers. That's and it's like, come sickening. on, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, it's like you said earlier, the, the drug addiction is very, you can see drug addiction. Or, yes. or somebody who's addicted to drugs. Like it's, it's very visual. You, you can tell when somebody's addicted to drugs. When somebody's addicted to pornography, that's so easily hidden. Oh, gosh, yes. And, but, it, but it's just as strong it's just, as a drug. It's a brain disease. Do you know that, and I know a lot, of porn addiction, they call it the mother load of all addictions because it's the oxytocin neurotransmitter that goes off when you look at sex. When you look at God gave it to us so we could procreate. Mm-hmm. But when you look at sex, it's the same neurotransmitter that is created when people have sex. Mm. So they will feel that intimacy and want to. Uh, that hey, Robbie. Hey, so sorry. The. <laughs> The the uh, we, we broke out again. We we had a good run there for a second, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, it, it came out on after the neurotransmitters. You want to uh, you know when you see sex, it's the same feeling as having okay. sex, and then we kind of lost you after that. Okay, so it's it it becomes to where that is what we become addicted to people that are addicted to porn. Mm -hmm. Um, It it is a brain disease. It's not a moral problem. It's not, I mean, it might've started out that way. Like, Oh, come on guy. Don't, but it, it, it is very crippling and it is all over. You can go into any church today and I guarantee you one out of three men are addicted to porn or have a porn problem. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. And the internet, while it's brought so many good things, it it's, you know, it used to be back in the day, Men, if they wanted to buy a human being, they had to get in their car and sleaze on down to the street and saddle up behind them like a snake. And hey, but, you know, and they had to actually buy a human mm-hmm. being. Whereas now they can just click on their phone and click a mouse and oh hey, she's thirteen, cool, all right, wow. and not 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 thirty minutes later. And so you know, and 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 you know, also the traffickers, you know, that panel Tyler that we mm-hmm. were on at mm-hmm. the men's breakfast. Yep. They pointed out that, you know, like men growing up with dads that are traffickers, mm-hmm. you know, because it, 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 it's a culture in a sense. So guys that have that, you know, they when they're younger, they can think, well, you know, I could I could sell drugs. But, you know, if I get caught, I'll go to prison. Right. So I could I could sell guns. But God, if I get caught, I'm going to go to prison. <gasps> I know. I'll sell girls because if I get caught, they go to prison. Prison, Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's the mindset that I want you to get across to us today is, you know, it's always been on the woman. It's on us. It's always been that way. So give us a little in depth of, of of breaking that bondage. When I was in and out of loose Starrett, like a revolving door, this was the scene at the payphone, prostitute. And I hate to call them prostitutes, Women that were being prostituted were lined up trying to call their trafficker, their boo, to get them out of there. They had just been in there the week before. They had just been in there the month before. They know the guards. It's just a way of life for them. Where were the men? Because the John was not in the tank next Mm -hmm. They they, So why? Even women 
it was almost like that was just this unspoken, well, you know, I guess I was going to, I'm going to get charged with prostitution again. But the men were like, okay, man, don't, don't do that again. Mm-hmm. It, it's mind boggling mm. because it is two people. And actually we're the victims. Exactly. We're the ones being yep. caught. Yes, absolutely. And so I don't think men understand that, you know, I don't think men understand the, that that basically what they're doing, especially if the girl is 17 or younger, they're buying a human being to rape. So true. So true. And and that is what we need to think of it as. It is not consensual sex. It is no. rape. It is rape. I mean, you like, okay, Centoya Brown, the, the girl that was trafficked at the age of 16 Absolutely, that yep. shot her John and mm-hmm. was sentenced to life mm-hmm. in prison without the possibility of parole. Okay, she's, she's out now. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. She was 16. How can you be charged with first degree murder for killing your John? Who was holding you hostage. If you were just kidnapped and we classified it as your kidnapper and you shot your kidnapper. Hey, oh, glad, glad that you took care of it. Hey, we're going to, you know, great job. Awesome. Right. Go ahead. But the sex trafficking, the, the ideology exactly. that your trafficker, oh, it's not his fault, it's yours. It's not, I'll give you another example, domestic violence. If a stranger walks up to me and punches me in the face, mm-hmm. the police come, they're going to jail. If my boyfriend punches me in the face, the police officers ask me if I want to press charges. Sorry, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, it's true. Well, that is and, true. And, you know, and yeah. so what... what so, but people are starting to get woke. The Me yeah. Too, people are starting to understand a little bit better. Yeah. Really, they are. Laws are changing. It's it's slowly turning but around. But you know what? It's, but it's up to us. It's up to you. It, I was to, just going to say, the voice. we need help from the men. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's up to us and, and this show to spread that message as well. Because, mm-hmm. you know, before we, we talked to Matt Osborne, before I saw you last, well, a couple years ago uh, at the uh, New Friends New Life, at that breakfast benefit, I had no idea. I looked really? at things. I looked at things through the same lens that that most men look at today. Was you know, if if it's a woman's out there and she's prostituting, it's because she just wants to do that. That's her deal. She wants to be in a in a strip club, and that's what she wants to do. I didn't look at it from the, the actuality of really what is going on. You and know, it, so many of the girls that you see on the street. Their traffickers around the corner mm-hmm. and she's not allowed to come back yeah. until she's made to made her quota and he's going to beat her ass yeah. if she doesn't make it. Absolutely. People don't see that. Right. Yeah. So I want, I want to give you the opportunity. We want to be respectful of your time, but I want to give you the opportunity uh, to talk to, to, to any of the girls out there uh, that are struggling with addiction or are, are being trafficked, being held against their will, or coerced or manipulated against their will, um, I, want you, I want you to speak just some hope into them and that there is a way out. And so if there's by chance that they're listening right now, I want them to hear your voice. Um, I, I, you are not what you have been put through. That is not your value. Everybody has value. And you know, y'all, if I can get out of it, anybody can you the guilt and the shame that we carry is crippling but it doesn't belong to you it doesn't belong to you and there are resources for you to be able you know it's funny when you don't know what it's going to look like to get out of something the horror that you're living in becomes normal and Mm. it's what you know and so you think that well that's all there is there is there is life on the other end and you are not going to be held down. Society is changing and you're not going to be held down because of what has happened Mm -hmm. to you. You didn't cause this. It's happened to you. Mm -hmm. And if I can get out of it, really anybody can, you're not what happened to you. You have value. Give them a couple quick resources. um, You know, newfriendsnewlife.org, N-E-W-F-R-I-E-N-D-S, newfriendsnewlife.org. Life dot 
org. Mm-hmm. Um, call us. We have resources for you. Um, there's housing for you at different uh, organizations. Um, you, you don't think that you have another way to make a living. And I'm telling you, there are all kinds of opportunities for women just like you, just like there were for me, just like there was for me when I had absolutely no hope of ever getting out of there. And there, there is. So newfriendsnewlife.org. I love it. I love yeah. it. Ben is going to gonna hit you with a question. I'm, this is like I've been looking forward to this just question the say, whole show. We, we ask this question to every guest. And I don't think I've anticipated an answer more than I am yeah. about to on this one. I, I can't wait to hear what you say. So you can go back to any point in your life and tell yourself one thing. Where do you go and what do you tell yourself? Don't open that door. (laughs) You know, um, I wish that I could go back to my 13-year-old self and tell her that she had value, Mm. that she wasn't what she looked like. She was what was in here. Mm. Um, I wish that I had been able to tell her that. I, I didn't know that. New Friends, New Life taught me, and it's one thing I try to pass on to my girls about our value. Um, I, I would love to be able to go back and say, you have value and don't open that door. Uh, Robbie, hey, God, I mean, this yeah, is so emotional. Uh, listen, your life, you went through what you went through for a reason. And your strength just shows so much right now. And I, I can tell you right now, I mean, I don't I know I didn't live your life, but I wouldn't have it any other way because you are such an inspiration to Thank those you. that are listening. Again, I've went through it with my daughter. Uh, I wish I would have known you back then instead of me thinking I could save the moment and be Superman. Oh, people, people call me a Nazi sponsor because I ain't Absolutely. playing. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, you just brought to light so much good. And and, and we're going to continue to support uh, New Friends, New Life. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll be a, a, a part of you as well. If you ever need us for anything. Anything. Anything, so Robbie. Much. Darren, it was an honor to meet you. I'm serious. Thank you. My family has been a Cowboy fan since the Cotton Bowl, okay? <laughs> I had to sign an agreement with my dad when I learned how to write that I would bleed blue for the rest of my life. So, go Cowboys. That's awesome. Right. We love Y'all, you. thank you so thank much. You. I'm thank so you, Robbie. To be here. Thank you. Thanks, thank thank you, you so much.